the sixth episode of my short lecture series on family violence and crime. I'm Dr. Hasan Bükar. In this episode, we talk about child sexual abuse. In more than two decades of my professional career focusing on crime and related matters, there hasn't been a more emotionally disturbing and complicated topic than the sexual abuse of children. It has many facets, various dynamics, and long and short-term consequences. However, society needs to understand it better to be able to recognize, respond, and prevent this very problem. While different states and jurisdictions come up with various definitions of the crime of child sexual abuse, at the global level, the World Health Organization's definition is actually accurate to capture the extent and the nature of the problem. So accordingly, WHO defines child sexual abuse as the involvement of a child in sexual activity that he or she doesn't fully comprehend or is unable to give informed consent to or for which the child is not developmentally prepared and cannot give consent. So this definition includes the sexual abuse of children within the family or outside the family. If it's within the family, we usually use the term intrafamilial sexual abuse, and this might involve uh, incest or any type of exploitive sexual contact occurring between the relatives. Or the term extrafamilial sexual abuse refers to exploitative sexual contact with perpetrators who may be known to the child, like neighbors, babysitters, living partners, um, teachers, clergy, so on and so forth. Or the perpetrators might also be unknown to the child. From a legal perspective, harm to the victim is not an element of the crime of child sexual abuse in most of the jurisdictions. And the examples of child sexual abuse, um, can in, it can include exposing one's sexual organs to the child, voyeurism, touching the sexual organs of the child, mutual or self-masturbation with the child, oral sex, intercourse, or anal sex. In addition, allowing the child to view or participate in pornographic or obscene movies is considered child abuse in general. And the actions um, going or including child sexual abuse include manipulation of the child, like sex, like psychologically isolating the child from other loved ones, or coercing the child by using adult authority or power on the child, or forcing the child by restraining him or her, or threatening and creating a fear like informing the child that if he tells, no one will love him or he will be separated from the family or she will be separated from the family are some actions um, within that framework. And it's important to understand abuser and the victim in that context. Uh, numerous studies indicate that the child abusers do not fit any stereotype. They might be from various backgrounds, from various socioeconomic uh, levels of the of the society, and they might have different motivations or different reasons uh, to abuse a child. 
However, an important scholar in this field, Finkelhor, has established four factors involved in sexual abuse of children. He calls this theory the four preconditions model of sexual abuse. And in this model, uh, there are preconditions creating a personal and social context for expressing sexually abusive behavior by adults towards children. But what we know about the perpetrators in general is most often those abusers know the child and uh, they might not necessarily be within the family. Uh, for example, the abuser might be a friend of the family, might be a teacher, babysitter, or a neighbor. And we know about 60% of the abusers fall into that group. And we know uh, about three out of 10 of those who sexually abuse children are family members of the child. And they are not necessarily only the parents, but they also might be siblings, uh, uncles, or, or other relatives like cousins. And the abuser is a stranger in only one out of 10 child sexual abuse cases. And those strangers, to be able to call this or define this act as an abuse, need to establish a trust-based relation first to access and conduct that sexual acts on the child. And in most of the case, abusers are men, but we also know the female child sexual abusers uh, are also exist, and they've been subject to criminal investigation in the recent years. You might have seen some of those cases in the media. And the uh, victim can be a boy or a girl. Uh, if you look at only the official statistics, you would recognize that the majority of reported cases are about uh, female victims. But we know, especially in the recent years, we have uh, recognized that the sexual abuse, especially at younger boys, uh, has also been a common problem. But especially at the, at the older ages among adolescents, if a boy is victimized, he is less likely to report that compared to a female victim uh, because of various social considerations, like um, those victims or their families might think that uh, reporting the sexual abuse of a boy might be against the societal perceptions about masculinity, being a man, and so on and so forth. So we know even though the official numbers indicate um, lower victimization rates for boys, the actual extent of the problem might be different than that. And um, the pornography, or in the recent years, we prefer to use the term child sexual abuse material, um, can also involve children. And we consider that, as I mentioned before, at the legal or criminal um, field, we consider this to be uh, child sexual abuse as well. I will talk more about that in a minute. And uh, talking about preconditions, think of horse model, uh, we have to understand that there are various motivations to sexually abuse a child. And this might be emotional congruence, uh, sexual errors, uh, and the blockages uh, for other types of sexual connections or those abusers uh, might be trying to overcome or they need to overcome some internal inhibitors. For instance, they must overcome uh, controls that would prevent them from sexually abusing the child. 
um, for instance, they might rely on alcohol and drug, or they might have an existing psychosis or the inability of the offender to identify with the needs of the victim um, or the criminal justice system's capacity to deter those victims might be uh, inhibiting those controllers. Or there might be external inhibitors and the perpetrators need to overcome those as well. And these conditions are outside the control of the perpetrators. Uh, those factors include social situations such as the type and the amount of supervision a child receives. Um, so if you remember the criminological theories, a routine activity perspective where there is a motivated offender but not a capable guardian uh, would be fitting well into uh, into that situation and, and be a good explanation for that. So if there is not a good supervision of a child which would protect uh, him or her from a potential perpetrator would increase the chances for for an abuser to reach to a child. Or even though there is a guardian, like a parent figure, if this parent figure is not capable or motivated to protect the child, um, this also can be uh, helping the perpetrator to overcome those external inhibitors. Um, lack of social support for mothers, barriers to equality, and erosion of the family's social networks contribute to the ability of the offender to overcome external inhibitors. So the families uh, living in isolated conditions who do not have a larger social support system uh, would be more likely, or the children living in those kinds of families would be more likely to be victimized sexually. And the children would also resist and the perpetrators need to overcome that as well. And to overcome a child's resistance um, um, can be done by the perpetrators uh, by creating various situations to gain access and gain the trust of the children and their families. And we call this process, that's a very, very common term that I expect everyone to understand well, um, the term grooming. And the grooming involves behaviors that increase a perpetrator's chance to access to children and gain their compliance and help to maintain secrecy and avoid disclosure. And this requires to gain access to a family and to a child. And this grooming process might involve both physical and psychological acts, like physical grooming might include gradually violating the child's boundaries uh, through place uh, appropriate touches and then increasing the level of those appropriate touches to an inappropriate level. Like starting with a non-sexual touch or a small kiss on the cheek and then slowly escalating this behavior um, to a kind of sexual touch on the top of clouds and later underneath the clouds. And this might involve uh, place that uh, that violates the personal space like um, like wrestling with the child or tickling the child or psychological grooming can include um, behaviors to build trust with the child and his or her family and teaching the child that sexual contact between adults and children is acceptable or even necessary as a form of sex education 
and then beginning to violate those boundaries, such as entering the child's bedroom or, or, or taking a shower with the child um, without clothes on. And, uh, you know, by doing that, the perpetrator can overcome the child's uh, or a potential victim's resistance. And in understanding the abused, um, you know, traditionally, we have thought that uh, the perpetrators need to be a male and the victims are usually young females. And the recent studies, as I mentioned before, indicate that boys uh, might also be the victims of sexual abuse at a higher rate, uh, especially, uh, especially at the younger ages, like below seven or so. And a study by Snyder uh, confirmed that uh, the, of all sexual assaults on children reported to law enforcement agencies, about one third of those um, included victims, uh, male victims under the age of six. So that's a good indicator that uh, the sexual abuse of children is, is generally an underreported problem, but it's more common uh, to be unrecognized or unreported uh, when the victim is a male, is a boy. And, um, you know, since the problem is not very likely to be reported um, to the authorities, especially if a child is not uh, comprehending the nature of those abusive behaviors, it's important for professionals and families to understand the indications of sexual abuse. And victims of, of child sexual abuse may disclose the fact that they have been sexually abused at different times during their lives, and this disclosure may take different forms. And it can be a verbal disclosure. It can be uh, it can be visually indicated by the victims by using various toys like anatomically correct dolls or it can be, uh, it can be disclosed um, through different behaviors, which needs to be recognized uh, by families or by professionals working with children, like teachers uh, or caretakers or medical professionals. Um, the direct statements, direct disclosures can be made to friends or to adults um, and sometimes, especially younger children, may say odd things uh, to observe the adult's reaction before proceeding any further. And these odd or partial statements are, are designed to test the water before saying anything else. Uh, many times, the victim is told by the perpetrator that bad things will happen if the abuse is ever discussed. So they might really be hesitant or afraid um, to openly talk about what happened to them. And if the adult fails to pick up on the signals or reacts negatively to the statements, the child may not proceed any further. And you might have already recognized in your own lives, in many societies, um, there's that norm talking about private parts or talking about anything related to... Um, sex or sexual relations is uh, is a taboo and children are usually uh, taught not to talk about that openly because of that situation especially younger kids or the adolescents might be 
hesitant to talk about their experiences, abusive experiences uh, to an adult. So it's important to understand the indications of sexual abuse in various ways. Um, there might be behavioral indicators, for instance, uh, uh, you know, although uh, all behavioral patterns uh, might not be present in every sexual abuse case, professionals should be observed those symptoms. And uh, once they recognize that, they should be able to report that, as I mentioned in one of the previous episodes. Most professionals are identified as mandated reporters in, in, in most of the states, and they are required to report that if they identify or if they uh, recognize any of those indicators. But there are also physical indicators, uh, which are usually recognized by either a parent or a medical professional. Um, this might, uh, those physical indicators might include uh, torn, stained, or bloody underwear, difficulty in walking or sitting, or genital anal itching, pain, swelling, or burning, or bru bruises or bleeding might be physical indicators of an actual penetration. Um, however, uh, we have to be aware that the lack of any physical findings only means that the acts didn't leave any physical evidence. Indeed, uh, most of the medical examinations of abused children cannot find a physical sign of that abuse. And that's sometimes because uh, of the nature of those sex organs, which heals real quickly and which is, uh, which is not necessarily uh, being harmed uh, during a penetration. But on the other hand, we have to be sure that uh, even a physical uh, touch or a physical um, physical uh, penetration uh, might not leave uh, the signs of force or or the signs of of, of uh, coercion, so to say. And um, the medical evidence. Uh, might not be present in all cases. When such facts are present, they provide strong evidence of abuse. And simply because there is no physical evidence or injury, uh, sexual abuse cannot automatically be ruled out in most of the cases. And the physicians consistently indicate um, that, you know, in most of their examinations, forensic examinations, they might not be able to come up with an evidence of, of uh, injury or force. So that doesn't necessarily mean the child was not sexually abused. And indeed, a study indicated that pregnant adolescents uh, or, or uh, among the studied pregnant adolescents in that study, uh, only two out of 36 had any evidence of penetration, even if they were pregnant. So that's a good indication that every sexual abuse doesn't leave uh, a physical sign. And the sexual abuse might take various forms. One is usually referred or known as pedophilia. Uh, what, what we know is every pedophilia or every child sexual abuse is not, uh, is not perpetrated by pedophilia. 
Uh, pedophilia is a psychiatric term, and it's uh, it's it's identified through various symptoms. And I've included a short yet very informative YouTube video for you guys uh, to listen to a prominent scholar in this field who identified the differences in the brains of of people with the symptoms of pedophilia and the normal uh, people's brains. So in that study, they identified that the gray matter in the brains of pedophiles are different than normal people. So their brains are, simply put, wired differently. We have to understand that everyone abusing children, sexually abusing children, are not pedophilic. And incest is another form of, of uh, child sexual abuse as commonly referred. But uh, I want you to be aware that in the recent years, we, we prefer to use the term intrafamilial sexual abuse of children rather than incest, because incest might take place between two consenting adults, and it is not always defined as a crime in various societies. If, especially if it includes two adults and if both are consenting to have sex. So we have to understand that intrafamilial sexual abuse is what we are mostly concerned about uh, within the family. And pornography is another form of sexual abuse. We usually refer um, or we usually use the term child exploitation where there is not an actual contact with a child. And, uh, and uh, child pornography is one of those cases or, or trafficking or, uh, or other types of exploitation of children. But again, uh, for terminology, I want all of you to be aware that the child pornography is again in the field of criminal justice uh, is a term we prefer not to use because pornography or pornographic materials are not illegal in most of the societies. So defining this as child pornography might make it look like uh, a regular thing or a normal thing, but we prefer to use the term child sexual abuse material or an alternative is child sexual abuse imagery rather than child pornography. But we all know that child pornography is a commonly used term but as educated people, I want you to be aware that we prefer to use um, the, 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 the more accurate term, which is child sexual abuse material or child sexual abuse imagery rather than child pornography. So uh, in short, uh, what we can say is that child sexual abuse is a crime and it occurs in secret and may last only moments or may last for years, especially in a family setting. And although professionals cannot explain why it occurs, some scholars have established certain profiles or characteristics of both the abuser and the abuse. And the sexual abuse may not leave scars that are visible to other persons. Uh, however, certain symptoms should raise the suspicion of any professional. And those professionals are usually identified as mandated reporters like social workers, teachers, medical professionals, uh, counselors, or, or, or law enforcement officers. And physical, behavioral, or medical indicators may lead a professional to uncover incidents of sexual abuse. 
As with all indicators, these must be viewed with caution. Now, concerning medical indicators, the general public must be made aware that certain commonly held beliefs may be misleading. For example, it's possible to have a completed act of intercourse and still retain an intact human in young girls. And the consequences of child abuse are traumatic and long-lasting. That's what we know for sure. And when understanding the extent or the overall impact of the problem, we cannot just uh, look at it uh, from a statistician's perspective. The rates and the numbers might show something to us, especially for policy making or evaluating the policies. But we have to understand that one victim is a big problem for the society and it needs to be understood well, it needs to be studied well, and we as a society need to come up with a good good solution to that problem to prevent a further victimization of children within their families or within the society. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I'm looking forward to uh, having you again in the next episodes.